Today's scripture reading is from Genesis 27, verses 18 through 35. So he went in to his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I have done as you have told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, How is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, Because the Lord your God granted me success. Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near, that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac his father, who felt him and said, The voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him, because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him, and he said, Are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near him, and he ate, and he brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, Come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments, and blessed him, and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let people serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game, that you may bless me. His father Isaac said to him, Who are you? He answered, I am your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me, and I ate it all before you came? And I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, even me also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away all your blessing. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you. Good to have you with us today. My name is Jonathan Moser. I'm one of the pastors here, and we are so glad that you are here with us. Turn in your Bibles, if you're not there already, to Genesis chapter 27. Uh, Having your Bible in front of you is always a good idea, but particularly in this morning, because the portion that we just read together is just a portion of the overall story that we're going to be looking at today. So Genesis chapter 27. Well, we've been studying this series, going through the lives of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and the story that we come to this morning is really an indicator of what the whole book of Genesis is about, but particularly the lives of these three men, which is that it's not really ultimately a story about them. The main character in the lives of these three men is really the the at times seen and at other times unseen hand of God working in sovereign, miraculous, providential ways to demonstrate his own goodness and his own grace and his own pursuit of them. This story is really the story of how God chooses the most unlikely people to show his love and grace. 
as Pete referenced, that God chooses losers and sinners and failures and liars and hypocrites because losers and sinners and failures and liars and hypocrites are all that he has to choose from. And somehow in his grace and in his providence, he weaves together a family out of broken, messed up people. He demonstrates his love and his character and his grace toward us and towards those who are least deserving of it, just just as a means of demonstrating how good and gracious he actually is. And in many ways, I think of all the characters that we look at throughout the story that's given to us in the book of Genesis, I think Jacob really is the most relatable. He's not like Abraham in that uh, you look at aspects of what it is that Abraham did, the faith that he demonstrated, the call that he responded to, and he seems almost superhuman at times. Now, we did enough studying in his life to recognize that Abraham's life was full of failure, failure and full of all kinds of brokenness, but to up and leave your homeland, everything you've ever known, go to a place that you've never seen, to a land that God has not yet shown you, to receive a promise that seems impossible demonstrates an amazing gift of faith in his life. And so for a lot of people, we see that demonstration of faith and it just seems so distant. It seems so disconnected from our experience. But in Jacob, we see somebody that all of us can relate to because he's so broken, he's so wicked, he's so conniving, he's so self-interested. He's really the first character that we come across in the Bible who's the sort of anti-hero where he's so selfish and he's so self-motivated, and yet we see God use him ultimately in miraculous and amazing ways. And right from the moment of the birth of Jacob and Esau, which we talked about at length last week, what we see is the character of Jacob on display. That what happened in the moment of his birth where Esau was born and literally on his heel was his brother clinging to his foot, you see this, you see this kind of deceitful, tripping attitude of Jacob, this, this attitude of Jacob that he's out for himself and he's willing to do whatever he needs to do to get ahead. In fact, his name, that name Jacob, literally means heel or heel grabber, and it has that whole idea of deceiver at its root. And so what we talked about last week is this idea that Jacob had taken advantage of the short-sightedness of his brother. He had stolen the birthright that belonged to him. He had taken advantage of the situation, and for a mere bowl of soup, had traded his brother for something that was infinitely more valuable. The double portion of inheritance that was to be given to Esau now belonged to Jacob. And all of this had just increased the animosity between these two brothers. There were already all kinds of, all kinds of disputes between them. The parents each had their own favorite child. These brothers didn't naturally like each other anyway, but this, this increased the animosity between them. And now they find themselves to be grown men with an aging father. And knowing that Esau had foolishly given away his birthright, Isaac was now looking for an opportunity to bless his favored son. He wanted his son to know that he had not forgotten him. He wanted his son to know that he loved him. And frankly, he wanted to be able to give a blessing to Esau that would not belong to Jacob. And in verse 1, we're told something that's very interesting. It starts by saying this, Isaac was old. And his eyes were dim so that he could not see. And I mention that that's interesting, not, be, not just because it kind of paints the, the, the backdrop for the story that's about to happen, but also because one of the rules of interpretation of Scripture is that whenever you see a physical description given, it's never given randomly. It's always going to come into the story later on, and certainly we find it here. Isaac's eyes are dim. 
He's going blind. He's an old man. He doesn't know how many more years he has left or, or, or if he has any time left, but he believes that the end is approaching and he wants to be able to bless his son before he dies. But it appears that his appetite is just fine because the instruction that he gives to Esau is to go out. We know that Esau was a, a hunter by trade. He was skilled with a bow. He loved to be outdoors. And so, so Isaac says to him, I want you to go out. I want you, to, I want you to find some game. I want you to kill something for me. Cook up that meal that I love, that favorite meal that you and I love to share together. Go make it for me and bring it back. And when you do that, I'm going to give you a blessing. And this blessing is distinct from the birthright that Jacob had taken from Esau in chapter 25. The birthright was something that was going to be distributed to the son upon the father's death. It was a double portion of the inheritance of the father, but only to be distributed upon his death. But a father could also give a blessing, and a blessing was something that was going to be a tangible gift as well as a spiritual gift that was going to be received while he was still alive. In other words, despite his failing physical sight, Isaac wanted to be able to see, in some sense or another, his son, his favorite son, be blessed. And so Isaac wants to demonstrate his love for his son. He wants his son's life to be made easier. So Esau heads out. He follows his father instru- father's instruction. But Rebekah happened to overhear the conversation between Isaac and Esau. And you'll remember that right from the outset, right from the very beginning of this story, Isaac and Rebekah had played favorites with their son. Isaac and Esau got along. They had similar interests. They loved hunting. They loved being outdoors. They loved all the same sorts of things. And you can just imagine the relationship between them. They got along easily and they joked around and they had all of these similar interests. But Isaac didn't have that kind of relationship with Jacob. Instead, Jacob and Rebekah were incredibly close. Jacob was much more of a homebody, it would appear. He loved his mom. They got along very well. And listen how the author actually describes the relationship beginning in verse 5, because the author actually kind of assigns each of these children to one of their parents rather than describing them as brothers. It's fascinating. Look what it says, verse 5. Now, Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you before the Lord before I die. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you. Go to the flock and bring me two good young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves and you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. As Rebecca is talking to her son Jacob, she doesn't refer to Esau as my son or my other son. She refers to him as your brother. This is sort of like when your kids are misbehaving and you come home and your wife informs you, did you hear what your son did today at school? The only time I get to claim sole guardianship of my children is when they've done something terrible. But Rebecca clearly has no love for Esau, and we're not exactly told why that is. For whatever reason, it seems that she not only favors Jacob, but she actually has a disdain for Esau. So much so that, think about this, his own mother is willing to swindle him out of a blessing that was intended for him by his father. I mean, this in many ways demonstrates exactly what we've talked about. This is a dysfunctional family. And when we think about these families being 
examples of holiness or sanctification or faith in God or all of these other sorts of things. Certainly, there are moments and aspects of their life where you can see a love for God in them, but what you see far more often is something akin to what you'd find on Jerry Springer. This is a broken, messed up family. They don't, they don't seem to get along at all, and what's about to happen is going to make things infinitely worse. And so she tells Jacob, go get this goat and bring it to me. We're going to make this meal. We're going to get you the blessing. And immediately Jacob sees the flaw in the plan. He says, well, what if my father recognizes me? My voice is different. I have smooth skin. Esau is hairy. What's going to happen if my father figures out that I'm trying to steal the blessing from my brother? Not only might I not receive the blessing, but I might actually receive a curse. And so the mother answers, and she says, well, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go put on Esau's clothes, and I'm going to tie goat skins to your arms and your neck so that if you give your father a hug, you're going to smell like your brother, and you're going to feel like your brother. And then I'm going to make this dish so that that you, rather than your brother, gets the blessing. And if all of that fails, says Rebecca, here's how serious I am about this. I will take your curse upon myself. So what's happening here? What motivates all this? Well, we don't know the particular dynamics, but at the very least, what we know is that Rebecca here does not trust. She does not trust God to actually care for and provide for her son. And in chapter 25, what we learned is that God had actually come to Rebecca and had expressly stated, your younger son is going to be blessed. In fact, he is favored of me. He's going to be the one who's the, the ultimate heir of this family. He's going to be the one that carries on the family name. He's going to be the one that's going to, going to follow in his father's footsteps, not the firstborn Esau. But Rebekah, even knowing this promise, having heard it directly from the mouth of God, chooses in this moment not to believe him. Believing instead that much like her mother-in-law and father-in-law, she needed to manipulate the circumstances to force God's hand into blessing the son that he had already promised he would bless. In other words, she had no trust for God's provision. She had no trust in God's goodness. She wanted to push God, manipulate God, twist God into doing something for her that he had already promised he would do. And ultimately, this is related to what we talked about last week, which is any time there is something in us that rises up to the level that we feel like we need to twist the arm of God to do things on our behalf, where we don't trust His goodness, what we're ultimately declaring is that we have a disordered love in our life, that there is something that is so broken within us that we have completely misaligned our our priorities. We have moved things out of the proper orientation in our heart, and we have put something else other than God in the place of God in our life. And that's exactly what's happened to Rebecca. Her motherly affection for her son, a good and right thing, and her desire to see her son blessed, a good and right thing, had risen to a level that was completely inappropriate in her life. Her son had become an idol. There was something in her that was so disordered that she pursues this path that was ultimately going to lead to the disdain of Jacob and brokenness in her own family for the next 20 years. And the lesson in that is is that ultimately we, we make the very same mistake that Rebecca does. We do the very same thing in our lives that she does in this particular moment. We, 
We pick a priority. We pick something that's so valuable to us. We try to make things happen to serve that priority. We pick idols in our lives. And maybe like Rebecca, it's children. Or maybe like Abraham and Isaac, it was the lack of a child. Or maybe it's a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend. But there's something in our life that rises to such a level that we feel that without that particular thing, we cannot be happy. And in Rebecca's desperation to protect the thing that mattered most to her, she actually damaged the one who mattered most to her. To paraphrase one one, one pastor, my my family is an incredible gift, but they they make for terrible gods. They cannot fill that role in your life. They cannot provide ultimately what it is that you might be looking for from them. They can't bring about the ultimate satisfaction and happiness that I long for. And listen, when you try to put a hope that big on the people you love, they inevitably get crushed by the weight of your expectations. You begin to put a pressure and a weight on them that they are unable to bear. And inevitably, a relational wedge begins to be driven in deep because you are looking to a sinful, broken person for something that only a perfect, righteous God can provide. In other words, to quote another pastor, good things become bad things when they become ultimate things. Good things become bad things when they become ultimate things. So look how this begins to play out in her life. Verse 18, so he went in, this is Jacob now, went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am, who are you, my son? Now right there, Isaac knows something's wrong. Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. Now Jacob lies right off the bat, but then look how he doubles down and look look at the language he uses in verse 20. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you have found it so quickly, my son? He answered, because the Lord your God granted me success. He actually brings God into his lie. He blasphemes in this moment the name of God. This is, in a very literal sense, using the name of God in vain, and he's actually using God to bolster his own lie. It's like he's saying to his father, the ultimate affirmation of the fact that you ought to give me this blessing is that I went out into the field and I killed this animal, and the only way I was able to find it is because God so richly blessed me in this moment. He uses God in his deceit. Verse 21. Then Isaac said to Jacob, please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. Now this is so clearly a testament to the poor character of Jacob. Isaac hears the voice, realizes something might be amiss, and immediately thinks, I'm not convinced this is actually my son Esau. Who else might do something like this in my family? Maybe it's the heel grabber, the deceiver. Perhaps it's him. Because of the poor character of Jacob, Isaac is tipped off in this moment. He's so suspicious of Jacob and and his conniving ways that he wants to verify Esau's identity. Verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. He said, are you really my son Esau? He answered, I am. Then he said, bring it near to me that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate and he brought him wine and he drank. Then his father Isaac said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. So he came near and kissed him. 
Now, as an aside, I, I had opportunity to pet a goat as recently as last week, and I'm not making that up. Right? We go to this little hobby farm, and I had, had opportunity to pet a goat as recently as last week. And the idea that this goat hair was a passable substitution for Esau's arms is impressive. Right? And so his father feels Jacob's hands with the goat skin. He feels the rough hair. He's convinced that this is Esau. He asks the question, Esau, is it really you? I'm going to give you one more chance to tell me, is it really you? And Jacob answers, it is. Jacob receives this blessing. He comes near to his father. His father holds him. And what we find out in the next verse is that he actually takes this opportunity to smell to see if it's really Esau. He's still suspicious of the situation. And Jacob, to this point, had all sorts of opportunities to turn. He had all sorts of opportunities to change. His father has now given him, I think, four different opportunities to admit, no, I'm not your son Esau. I was trying to pull one over on you. And every time he goes down further and further into his deceit, he continues to lie until finally he seals his betrayal with a kiss. Verse 27, And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. Now, if you notice the blessing that Isaac extends, it, it echoes the promises that have been given to his father Abraham. Those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. You're going to receive this land, this material blessing, all of these sorts of things. People are going to serve you, and through you, everyone is going to be blessed. In other words, right in this verse, which you have is a promise that the ultimate blessing of all humanity, which we know finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ, is going to come through the line of Jacob, not the line of Esau. But then he adds this statement, be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Something struck me this week that I've never noticed about this text before, which is, do you remember who Isaac is actually intending to give this blessing to? He's intending to give it to Esau. But God had already told Rebekah that it was Jacob who was going to lord over his brother. In other words, we tend to think of Isaac as purely the victim in this story. And there's all kinds of reasons to view him as a victim. He's an an old man who intends to do kind things for his children. He's nearly blind and his son takes advantage of him. Certainly he is a victim, but I would say he is not merely a victim. This is actually an attempt, I believe, on Isaac's part to countermand the will of God. I think it's safe to assume that Isaac was aware of the promise that had been extended to Rebekah at the birth of their two sons. He knew that Jacob was going to have preeminence over Esau. He knew that God intended for the blessing to come through Jacob and not Esau, but he didn't like that idea. He didn't like the idea of the younger son serving, or rather the younger son having dominance over the older son. So he extends his blessing to try to assure Esau's position as the heir. This was his opportunity to say, Jacob may have taken the birthright and he may get two-thirds of all my belongings, but you are going to have the position of prominence in our family. You're going to be the heir. You're going to be the blessed one. Your son Jacob, that kid that I can't stand, he is going to be subservient 
to you. But even in his own attempt to subvert the will of God, the stated intention of the creator of the universe, God somehow uses the sin of Jacob to bring about his will. And understand that just because God is has the ability to use the sinful actions of broken people to bring about his will. It doesn't mean he's giving a stamp of approval over sin, but here's what it does mean. It means that the will of God cannot be subverted. It will not be turned. His hand will not be forced. The manipulation of Rebecca in this circumstance was completely unnecessary. Jacob's deceit was completely unnecessary. God's will was going to be done. God had already made a promise that he was going to make good on. And in both of these parents' attempts to assure that their will rather than God's will was going to be done, all they did was mess things up further. Yet somehow God is able to redeem the brokenness of the situation as we'll learn in the coming weeks. Verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from hunting. Now, this is almost out of a sitcom. You can imagine it in your mind. Here comes Jacob going out one door and Esau coming in the other. And in other words, if Esau had arrived just a half second earlier, what he would have seen is his younger brother wearing his oversized clothes with goat skins tied to his arms. That's a hard scene to explain away, right? And judging from what we're about to see from Esau, the response likely would have been the end of Jacob's life. But again, God provides for Jacob here. He gives him enough time to get away. Look at verse 31. Esau also prepared this delicious food. He brought it to his father and said to him, let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. Isaac said to him, who are you? He answered, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came, and I blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me even also, O my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully, and he's taken away your blessing. Now, in the Hebrew language, when you're trying to make a point of emphasis, the way that they did this was just by repetition. And if you were to look at the original Hebrew language and translate it word for word, it would say something like this, that in verse 33, when Isaac realizes that he's been duped, when he realizes that Jacob had just stolen the blessing from Esau, literally translated, it says, Isaac trembled a great trembling. This old man who can hardly see is shaking with rage embarrassment, shame. He's embittered immediately in this moment. And verse 34, Esau literally, if you were to translate it, cried a great and exceedingly bitter cry. He is wailing at this point. He's sobbing. He lets out this primal scream, and he asks for another blessing. But according to one Hebrew scholar, the formal blessing of Isaac implied an oath that could not be withdrawn even under fraudulent conditions. In other words, the blessing that had been promised to Jacob, these weren't just the well wishes of of a father for his son. And it wasn't just a will that could be changed. 
he had invoked the blessing of God himself. And God, in turn, in this moment, extends that blessing, fulfilling his own promise to Jacob, extends that blessing in fulfillment of the prophecy that had been extended to Rebekah. Now, as we read through this story, and I'll admit to you, as I've heard this story preached over the years, most often what I've heard people emphasize is the moral lessons that need to be taken away from this. And certainly there are all kinds of moral lessons that we can and should take away from this. Chief among them, the idea that within the context of the family, the the, the sort of lack of communication that's happening, the favoritism towards children, the deceit between husband and wife, the anger and the violence between brothers, there's so much to learn here as to how we ought not interact. And certainly we should learn those lessons. Isaac here is heartbroken. He was betrayed. He hadn't been able to bless Esau. His own wife deceived him. His son Jacob is now on the run. Esau is embittered for decades after this point. And he's robbed from the enjoyment that would have been his. And even though Jacob received this blessing, the cruel irony of Rebekah's deceit with Jacob is that even though he'd received the blessing, he and his mother now find themselves in a position where they are separated from, from one another for the rest of their lives. In fact, what we're going to find out later is that Rebekah actually dies after Jacob flees. He never gets to see his mother again. And this mother, intending to do right by her son, intending to bless him, intending to provide for him, intending to show her love for him, in essence, runs off the person who means most to her in the entire world. In other words, there's all sorts of practical lessons that we could try to take from this story. The importance of honesty and the dangers of favoritism, the destruction that's caused when family doesn't communicate, and the temptation might be to read this story and take it as purely a cautionary tale intended to promote a moral lifestyle. But I don't think the purpose of this story is to encourage us towards honesty and forthrightness, at least not primarily. Rather, it serves as an illustration of God sovereignly bringing about His will in the lives of those whom He loves. And if you do the classic work of saying, where do I find myself in this story? If you do the classic work of saying, is there some way where I'm trying to manipulate the hand of God, where I'm trying to turn His will, where I'm trying to earn His favor, where I'm trying to deceive my way into things, whatever it happens to be, the only answer you can walk away with is that you and I in this story are Jacob. We are deceivers, we are liars, we are sneaks. We are selfishly motivated, we are self-interested, we are all about us. And you see it in the very heart of Jacob when he's posed with the situation where he's being asked to deceive his own father. His response is not, how could I do this sin against God? Nor is his response, how could I sin against my own father that way? He doesn't even, he doesn't even demonstrate what you would typically hope a son would demonstrate towards his father, which is some level of respect and recognition of his father's role in his life, his only concern is, what if dad curses me? And yet somehow, in God's incredible grace, this is the man that God chooses to use in the line of Christ. And the lessons for us in that are legion. Because where we find ourselves so often is in the position of saying, how is it possible that a holy and righteous God 
who has perfect expectations, who demands holiness and righteousness. How could a God like that ever choose to use someone like me? And the answer is that if God's if God's ability to use you was dependent on your ability to be used in and of yourself, in and of your own goodness, in and of your own ability, you would be useless. But thankfully, God's ability to use you depends entirely on His goodness, on His grace, on His generosity, that He is willing to use the most broken. In other words, there is no one no one that has gone so far in their lives that they have become useless to God. He has an ability to redeem. He has an ability to restore. He has an ability to use those who are most broken. And I think in so many ways, despite what we find out about Esau, if God had chosen to use Esau instead of Jacob, we wouldn't walk away with that same lesson. Because our temptation would be to say, well, of course God used Esau. He was the firstborn, and he was the most like his father, and he's this manly man, and of course he should be in the line to be used and blessed of God. But that's not the one that God used. God used the man who was a deceit, who was deceitful, who was a liar, who was a sneak. And we're Jacob in this story. As one Old Testament theologian remarked, this is really helpful for us because it helps us to see our own place in it. But see, because of our sin, we, like Jacob, were not deserving of the blessing of the Father. We had not earned our place in the family. We had nothing about us by which we could have been considered favored children of God. What we deserved, much like Jacob, what we actually deserved was to be cursed, to be disowned, to be on the run. But Jesus, the firstborn, gave up his blessing for us. Jesus, the firstborn, was abandoned for us. Jesus took our condemnation, in his, or rather took, took our condemnation on himself so that now, because of his generous grace, we do not have to be trying to finagle our way into acceptance and blessing and usefulness because he has freely placed his own robes of righteousness on our back so that when we approach our Father, He doesn't see the disdainful wretch that we might feel ourselves to be, but what He sees is His perfect Son. God, with eyes wide open, unlike Isaac, sees us and knows us. But because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, He doesn't see the loser, the sinner, the hypocrite, the failure. What he sees is the perfection of Jesus Christ. And because of Jesus' death and resurrection, what is true of Jesus, according to Scripture, has now been declared true of you. It's what leads Jesus to say things like, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers and sisters. He says that of people like you and like me. He's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. In fact, he's excited to call us brothers and sisters. He's excited to welcome us into his family. And what's been declared of Jesus now is declared of you, which means that when God the Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, he now, if you are in Christ, says the exact same thing of you. Not just a begrudging acceptance of you into a family, not just a legal acknowledgement of your sonship or daughterhood, but he with open arms welcomes you 
declares you to be a beloved child and riches, rich, richly blesses us. See, in Jesus, rebels have become respectable. Cheaters have become cherished. Sinners have become saints. And liars have become beloved. And the hope that Jacob experienced, even on the heels of this sin, is the same hope that belongs to you and me today. That you have never run too far from the grace of God to be saved by it. And you have never sinned too much to be disowned by God. As the great theologian James Boyce once said, the sovereign will of God is done in spite of our or any other person's opposition to it. And that includes your very salvation and acceptance. In other words, the hope that we have is in God's commitment to us, not even in our commitment to God. And that is a balm to our souls. That his acceptance is sure, promised, and secure. Because his love is unchanging, unfading, unfailing. Because he is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. And because of that, we can have the same assurance that Jacob did. God can use you. God loves you. God cares for you because of his own son. So be encouraged and blessed brother and sister, that though we find ourselves in the position of Jacob, we do not find ourselves abandoned by the Father, but embraced and blessed by Him. Let's pray together. God, we thank You for the assurance that we find in Your Word. And we thank You for a story that against all odds communicates to us the way that You are able and willing to save and to love and to pursue and to use and to adopt those whom we would find most unacceptable. God, I thank You that You are not looking for those who have it together, that You can use broken people and dysfunctional families and prejudiced parents and deceitful brothers in Your perfect plan. God, that you can use even people like us. We thank you that you save us in that condition, that you're willing to stoop to meet us in that place. And we thank you that by your grace, you don't leave us there. That when you adopt us and bring us into your family by virtue of the proximity that we are given to the Father, by virtue of the love and the acceptance and the fact that we can come into the throne room of God with all the boldness and confidence of Jesus Christ, we can be assured that in this life you will never leave us or forsake us. That we are your sons and daughters in whom you are well pleased. So God, encourage our hearts in this morning and it's in your name we pray. Amen.